You are listening to the Grow Law Firm Podcast, where each guest shares actionable, practical ideas with you on how to get more clients, expand your reach, and grow your law firm's revenue and profit. Here's your host, Sasha Burson. Welcome to Grow Law Firm Podcast. I have a terrific guest with me here today. Joey Coleman is a former criminal defense attorney who turned a consultant and a keynote speaker extraordinaire, also a best-selling author of two great books. One of them is called Never Lose a Customer, and another one I believe is even more relevant in these times. We're recording this in early 2024. It is titled Never Lose an Employee. Joey, welcome to the podcast. Oh, Sasha, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's an absolute delight to be here and super excited about our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I get to speak with hundreds of attorneys one-on-one and at conferences every single year. They're either looking for more customers or they're looking (laughs) for more employees, but both probably- Or both. Or both. (laughs) So both are- significant challenges to law firms, very small, very large, and everything in between. I scanned through your book. I didn't read the book yet on never lose an employee, but I heard you speak on the subject a few times, and I'm fascinated with the subject. And the way that you talk about it is like no one else does. You talk about the first 100 days, how important they are to retaining a customer for life. But when you talked about that, this is something that really caught my attention. When you talked about retaining an employee for life or for many years versus Mm -hmm. losing them, you talked about how companies are really focused on day one. And there are procedures and policies. Here's what you do on day one. Yes. And then day two, they're kind of, meaning new employees, left (laughs) on you. Go do it. Absolutely. Now, I love our customers. I know that customers are the reason why we're here. But without having great employees, there are no great customers. Very true. Let's talk about your methodologies and your findings and some of the statistics that you mentioned in your book about how important it is to retain great, attract and retain great employees and some of the tactics that you share. Well, I appreciate that, Sasha. Yes, I agree. To me, client experience or customer experience and employee experience are two sides of the same coin. We can't expect to have great client relationships and deliver great client experiences if we don't have amazing employees who are going to deliver those experiences and maintain those relationships. Conversely, we can't expect to have employees who love coming to work if we don't have great clients to work with. And so I really feel like both the client experience and the employee experience feed each other. And as we improve one, we necessarily improve another. You and I have both had the experience, whether walking into a law firm or even just a restaurant or a convenience store, a gas station, a bakery, any number of businesses we might walk into where the employees seem unhappy. They seem frustrated to be there. And before we've even become a customer, we pick up on that and we think, why am I coming here to do business? These people don't like the business and they work here. Are they going to take care of me? What is my experience as a customer going to be? So I think there's a huge opportunity for law firms, as you're, to your point, small, medium, and large, 
to think more strategically about the experience they're creating for their employees as a way to enhance their client experience as well. Now, as somebody who, as you mentioned, came up as an attorney, I grew up, my father was a criminal defense lawyer. I worked in his law firm. The first time I showed up to work in his law firm, I was in the sixth grade. I was an elementary school student. And I worked for him all through high school and even in college and in law school. And then I became a lawyer and I actually went and worked with him as well. I worked for large government agencies as a lawyer. I worked for large law firms as a lawyer. And what I found across the board is that the experience of being a lawyer in a law firm, especially a new lawyer, a new hire, or a new administrative support team member, is not that remarkable. It's not that great. Yes, the, the pay can be good and the opportunity and the status can be good. But when I was coming up, you were expected to bill 2,000 hours a year for no consideration that that meant you probably had to work 3,000 hours a year to be able to bill 2,000 hours a year. And I think what many law firms have failed to recognize is that the landscape has changed and the old way of doing business and the old way of operating law firms is not only not possible in the future, but it was probably never a great idea the way we were doing it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Employees have become very mobile in the last yes. few years. Whereas, so I'm in my mid forties, having many jobs listed on your resume or LinkedIn profile didn't look good even a few years ago. Today, it's the norm. So for employers to keep employees for years is becoming more of an exception than a rule, but Filling in a position, I know this as an employer of many, many years, is incredibly challenging and has become ever more so challenging. I find it very interesting. Back in the day, a decent pay and a good work environment is all it took to keep an employee for a substantial period of time. Today, my partner and I go what we thought was above and beyond, but recently learned that it's not. We offer benefits. Most others do. We offer good pay and great work environment, flexibility of working from home or from the office, an annual company retreat we take our employees on cool trips. We send them gifts on holidays. We send them gifts on one year, two year, three year, five year anniversary. That's where it stops. In your book and in your other content, you talk about how this also may not be enough. It is. And what's interesting, Sasha, is first of all, kudos to you and your partner for, for running this type of firm. You are already in the top 1% of law firms. If you think about things like providing great benefits and providing flexible work and providing, you know, offering gifts and presents and acknowledging and rewarding your people, many law firms don't even do that. But you are absolutely correct that in 2024 and beyond, as we think about the bar for a remarkable employee experience, it is being raised. In my book, Never Lose an Employee Again, I profile over 50 companies from all seven continents. And what we found is that in order to be an employer of choice, you have to do more than what your peers are doing. You have to be better than average. 
which shouldn't be a surprise to most lawyers because we hold ourselves out to our clients as being above average. We're the law firm that can handle your service, your needs better than any of our competitors. We're the law firm that's going to be able to get you better contracts, better deals, better negotiations, better results in trial, all the things that we say to our prospective clients. But yet when we think about our employees, we say, well, how are we paying compared to the rest of the law firms in town? And what kind of benefits are, well, we don't want to offer too great of benefits. We want to offer, you know, in the top half, but we're happy being more in the middle or just above the middle as opposed to setting the industry standard. A couple of statistics about the employee experience in law firm that I think will help ground our conversations are as follows. The statistical annual attorney turnover in law firms in the United States is 18.4%. Now, some of the folks listening might say, oh, our numbers are worse than that, Joey. Some might say, oh, we haven't had an alloy, a lawyer leave in two or three years. Our turnover isn't that bad. The other thing we're often not factoring in is our staff turnover. When we think of our teams and our administrative support and the other people that are part of our firm, those numbers average closer to 30 to 60% annual turnover. So now we think about how are we supposed to maintain a firm if this many people are leaving? And this isn't just about, oh, take care of them and keep your people long-term. And that's a nice, fuzzy, warm hug thing to do. This directly impacts the bottom line in our firm. The, in uh, some research that was done looking at lawyers, uh, the cost of one-year associates, losing an associate, right, costs the typical law firm over $650,000, both in terms of the cost to replace them, to hire someone new, and the lost productivity and billable hours during that time period where we didn't have the associate in place to keep earning money for the firm. So this just isn't about, oh, how does it feel and what's the morale like and kind of what's the culture like within our firm. This cuts directly to the bottom line of the profitability of the firm, the revenues of the firm, and the operational abilities of the firm. That's an astonishing number. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought so too. I had to take a moment when I first came across this research. I got to dig into the book to really understand the calculations behind it because that is huge. We know that losing an employee is incredibly expensive in our business, which is marketing or any other service business. An associate or a key member, it's incredibly expensive. Not only do you lose them, you need to find a replacement, you need to train that replacement. That replacement is going to have a ramp up time. So for example, majority of our customer facing team members are account managers. For an account manager, a full ramp up time is six to 12 months. So they do not become as good as the person they're replacing for six to 12 months. And there is a cost of hiring or recruiting and then hiring and then training and then ramping them up. And if we lose them after a year and a half or two years, that never ending cycle of add on cost. But I find there is something that we didn't talk about yet, and I think you touched on it quite a few times. I think that most firms, most law firms, most businesses focus on creating a competitive pay, competitive benefit package, a competitive type of an environment where we're competitive. We're as good as the others, 
versus creating something remarkable. And I think that the additional cost of having something that's just as good as everybody else or slightly better than everybody else is competitive level engagement of your employees, not remarkable level of engagement. Competitive level of service, not remarkable level of service. Competitive support to fellow employees, not remarkable support. Any thoughts on that? Sasha, you are you are so spot on and true. You know, and I think, and I say this respectfully, having been a lawyer, there are a lot of elements of being a lawyer. There are a lot of things to pay attention to and a lot of things to focus on and a lot of things pulling our attention. Many lawyers were never trained how to be employers. They were trained how to be lawyers. I don't know about you. I, I went to law school and there was never a course on managing a law firm. None, that, that wasn't even a course available, let alone a course that students were taking. And so when we think about lawyers leaving law school and going into law firms and becoming partners or managing partners or being responsible for direct reports, whether that's something is as simple as an assistant or a, you know, a paralegal or something like a junior associate or a whole team of a litigation associates, we never got the training. And so most lawyers, frankly, are just fumbling around and trying to do their best. And usually they're managing people the way they want to be managed. Instead of stopping to recognize that that employee wants to be managed the way that works for them, not the way that works for me. A brand new book just came out this week by my good friend, Mike McCallowitz. And the book is called All In. It's all about how do you get your employees to be all in. And I had the chance to read an advanced copy of the book, and I've known Mike for years. And he talks about something on page 185 of the book that when I read it in the advanced copy of the book, I immediately stopped reading. I called my executive assistant. And I said, I want to schedule a meeting tomorrow to talk about this. And the thing he talks about in that part of the book is a personal operating manual for our computer, for our TV, for our dishwasher, for our refrigerator. We have a manual that describes how it works. Why don't we have those Sasha for ourselves? Why don't we have those so that when you and I start to work together on a project, I can hand you my personal operating manual. You can hand me yours. And before we start to interact, I can read what makes Sasha tick. How do you like to be treated? How do you like to be addressed? If given an assignment, how do you like to have that presented? If it's time to give criticism or feedback, how do you like that to be presented? What works best for you? What doesn't work for you at all? Even the act of going through this exercise with my executive assistant, I realized things about myself that I didn't even know. And then we sat down. We each took time to write up our own. And then we sat down. And instead of handing them across to each other, I had the idea of, well, what would it be like if we started with me reading yours? This is someone who, in a, in a traditional hierarchy, would say they work for me. I believe we work together. I don't believe anyone works for me. We work together. But I said, let's start with your personal operating manual. And I actually read it out loud to her. And I said, what I'd like to do is while I'm reading out loud, I may stop and explain things. 
And if by my reading it, you feel that I'm not understanding, I want you to stop me and explain so that at the end of this review, you feel I have a clear understanding of what makes you tick, how you operate. Sasha, that activity alone can dramatically change the interactions we have with our team members. That is remarkable. Never have I ever thought of that. Neither had I. That's why I want to give a shout out to my friend, Mike McAllowitz, who wrote the book All In, because I'd never even heard of personal operating manuals. And when I read it, I was like, why isn't this being taught in every business on the planet from day one? There's a concept that's somewhat similar to that. And that is, you know how you can run your own disk profile? Yes. And you can run disk profiles on other team members and review it. But it's not quite the same as personal operating manual. Exactly. No, and I'm a fan of DISC, and I've taken the DISC mm -hmm. assessment, and I'm a fan of a lot of the assessment tools, the Enneagram, the Myers-Briggs, you know, the predictive index, all these things we can do. But what I think is different with the personal operating manual, in all of those assessments, you answer some questions, and then you get a report that says, this is who you are. In the personal operating manual, I tell you who I am. It's not a report. It's not a test. I'm telling you now, there is a requirement for me to be honest. There is a requirement for me to be self-reflective and to realize what it is that is going to uh, help you succeed when dealing with me. I have to have a certain level of self-awareness there. But when we are comfortable putting on paper how we operate, and we're comfortable sharing that with other people, and we're comfortable with them sharing their operating manual with us. Isn't this the goal we all have to be able to work better with our coworkers and our colleagues? Why not actually have these discussions instead of saying, well, in our firm, this is how we handle things. This is how you make a complaint. This is how you get a review with your boss, which will happen, by the way, usually once a year. You know, no, this is a living, breathing document that allows us to regularly be checking in. And at any given moment, if you and I are going to be working on a project together, I can go back and review your personal operating manual. So something that I did after I did this with my assistant is I went through my calendar and I made a recurring appointment every eight weeks. And the appointment just says POM, Personal Operating Manual. And it's an appointment with myself for 20 minutes to review her personal operating manual hmm. and to do it every week, every eight weeks, excuse me, so that it's fresh in my mind so that I'm remembering to do this. Fascinating. There's one thing that you said that I disagree with wholeheartedly because you said something along the lines that most of us have a goal of working better together with our teammates. I'm paraphrasing this heavily, obviously. Sure. I think that requires such level of intentionality for mm. managers and team members that most people simply do not have. In, in fact, I've never framed it that way. And I have a number of people who I work with who report to me I want to make a great experience for them, but I don't, 
I don't think I'm that intentional. Mm, interesting. Well, I appreciate that. And maybe mm. that's me being overly optimistic that it's most people. But what I will say is when I made that a primary driver of how I worked with my team, I noticed a significant change. One of the things oh, that sure. I think most, yeah, exactly. It became part of our culture. And one of the things I noticed when something, when a team member of mine makes a mistake, they do something that uh, is different than the way I would have done it, or I don't like the way they do something. The first question, the very first question I always ask myself is, prior to now, have I ever told them not to do it this way? And Sasha, most times when I ask that question, the answer is no. I never explained that they shouldn't do it this way. I never explained that this was a problem or this would cause an issue. So guess whose fault this mistake is? Mine. As the leader, I didn't clearly explain not only our philosophy for how we do things, but our process for how we do things. Because I think many leaders, especially law firms, if they are going to do any training or teaching, they're teaching about process. Do this, fill it out this way, sign here. It's very technically driven as opposed to why we do it this way. When I was in a law firm setting, I was in a, spent the majority of my career doing criminal defense work. Whereas you might imagine, if a mistake happens in a criminal defense case, someone goes to jail or prison. It's a big consequence. If a mistake happens with a contract or with an employment issue or something, I'm not saying there aren't consequences, but the consequence of going to prison is a significant consequence. So what I always did is whenever we got a new paralegal or a new support administrative team member came in, we would sit them down on the first day and we'd say, our number one goal is to keep our clients out of prison. We do that in a number of ways. One way we do that is we are accurate in our paperwork. We are accurate in our filings and we are accurate in making sure that all the deadlines are met. Deadlines by the court, deadlines by statute. Because if we make a mistake here, someone might go to prison. That is a significant consequence. Now, let's look at our communications with the client. We want to be accurate. But if we tell them that we think their case will be resolved in a month and it's resolved in five weeks, it's bad but no one's gone to prison. If we miss a deadline with the court, someone could go to prison. So we tiered the philosophy with how it might show up in this person's day-to-day -day activities to let them know that some of their activities required a higher level of attention and focus and intentionality than others. Because we can't expect our team to be 100% focused, 100% intentional in every interaction all day, every day. It's foolish to expect that. So I wanted to always give them a criteria or permission for here's where we really need the focus. If we don't have 100% focus over here, it's not ideal. We don't want to strive for that, but it will be more okay. And so that's very procedural. What about, we take it one step back. 
So when they think about a thriving business, to thrive, the business has to make three groups of people happy. Customers, employees, and stakeholders. In larger businesses, and we don't have that yet, and we already have 54, 57, 58 employees, I'm not sure how many, but somewhere there. We still do not have a chief employee happiness officer. <laughs> we have a chief client happiness officer. Mm, interesting. We do not have a chief employee happiness officer. We definitely do not have a chief stakeholder happiness officer. That comes much later. Sure, sure. I get it. But, but as we're having this conversation, I am reminded of how important it is to have a chief employee happiness officer. And again, our sizes, we're not tiny. We're not large, but we should have a chief employee happiness officer. Many companies of our size have someone who is in charge of HR. Absolutely. And Sasha, for what it's worth statistically, and I don't know exactly where your business is based and where the employees are spread out, because I imagine there might be some employees that operate remotely and things yeah. like that are in a hybrid environment. At 50 plus employees, if I have my math correct, you are in the top 5% of employers on the planet in terms of number of employees. In fact, I think you may be in the top 2% of Probably employers on the planet, right? Yeah. So you are a large business by comparison to many other businesses, right? But here's the challenge, and I agree with you. Once your business reaches, I'll say, a minimum of 10 people, certainly by the time you're at 50, there needs to be someone on the payroll who when they wake up every morning, their first thought is, how are we creating the best possible experiences for the people on this team? Now, whether that's chief happiness officer, chief people officer, head of HR, whatever their title is going to be, and we can talk about the importance of titles because I do believe those are important someone has to have that job. And I think what is often the case with law firms, especially small to medium-sized law firms, I'm going to define those as law firms with fewer than 30 employees, is that those law firms think, well, that's, that's the founder's job. That's the managing partner's job. But it's nowhere in that founder or managing partner's job description. It's nowhere in the criteria by which they are compensated. No one is checking their progress or their achievement in this category. And we know that what matters needs to be measured and what is measured matters. If we're not tracking that, we have can have no hope of being successful in delivering on those type of metrics or those type of goals within our organization. And I think folks who are, folks who are operating businesses of 30 or fewer employees, which is overwhelming majority of law firms. Absolutely. I think that they would say, I have a bigger fish to fry than worry about this. <laughs> while misunderstanding that payroll is probably half of their revenue, at least. At and least. What, what makes it more expensive for them on so many different levels is not focusing on employee happiness. Although it is hard to measure. How would you, I wonder, how would you measure employee happiness? 
Well, I think there's a couple of ways. And I think we also live in an era where there are increasingly tools that can help us with this. I mean, there are so many fantastic uh, technology tools that will allow us to take a pulse on what's going on with our employees, to check in with them electronically on a daily or a weekly basis. Hey, how's it going? What's working? What's not working? You know, quick little survey responses that just give us a general feel. But here's where I think we don't even need to get to the technology, Sasha. If I were to walk into any law firm, anybody who's listening, if I were to go into their law firm, in under 20 minutes, I can tell you whether this is a good place to work or not. I can usually tell you in under five minutes. How would you do that? I would just observe what's happening. I would observe, do people seem to be enjoying what they do? When someone walks down the hall and they pass a coworker, do they look them in the eye, acknowledge them and say hello? Or is it heads down, I'm focused on doing my job? Do people who sit next to each other actually know each other or are they just in the same physical space? When people interact with each other, we get a feel. Again, this goes back to that restaurant example. You and I have walked into plenty of stores in our lives and gone, this doesn't seem like a good place to work. No one told us that. We didn't do a formal analysis. We didn't have a checklist where we said, oh, are they smiling? Are they looking happy? Are they making eye contact with other people? Are they All these things that we pick up intuitively as human beings, we just feel that it's not really that great of a place to work. The same can be said for law firms. Now, I'm not saying that your law firm should be all lovey-dovey and hugs and everybody's getting along fabulously all the time. No, there can be conflict. There can be strife. There can be focused goals. There can be heads down time periods where we're working on getting things done. But it never ceases to amaze me how many lawyers don't know a lot about the people who they work with. Let me give you an example. I want everybody listening to think of someone you work with, someone in your organization. Okay, you've got someone? Great. I'm going to ask you a series of questions. And if you know the answer to this question, keep playing. If you don't know the answer to the question I'm asking, you're out. The game is over for you. And we'll see how many questions I have to ask before you're out. I'll trust you on your word that if you're out, you self-acknowledge that you're out. All right, think of that coworker, that teammate, that colleague. Do you know their name? Great, you get to stay in. For most people, this is okay. They've gotten the first question right. Brilliant. Do you know whether they enjoy their work? Do you know whether they feel like they're making the progress towards their career goals that they want to make? Do you know if they're married or not? Or if they're in a relationship? If so, do you know that person's name? Do you know if they have children or not? If so, do you know their children's name? Do you know if they have any pets? If so, do you know their pets' names? When it comes to the weekend, if they had a free schedule, do you know what they would most like to do? If they were watching a big game, a sporting event, do you know which team they'd be rooting for? If they were going to go to the movies this weekend and you were to look at all the list of movies that are currently playing in the theater, could you accurately tell me which movie they're going to choose to go to? By now, most people have lost the ability to answer the question. 
they maybe knew some of those answers, but not all of those answers. And this is somebody you work with. This is the first name you thought of. Now, some people are saying, but Joey, I, I, I picked a person on my team that I don't know that well. If I would have picked someone else on the team, I, would, I get it, but you picked the person, not me. If I would have taken a list of everybody that works at your company, Sasha, I bet I would have been able to find multiple people on that list that you couldn't answer all those questions for. That's not a criticism of you as a leader. That's an acknowledgement of the fact that this requires work. It requires effort. If you were to ask me those questions about everybody on my team, and I'm a guy who wrote a book called Never Lose an Employee Again, I'm not 100% sure that I could answer every one of those questions accurately. There's always room for improvement. There's always room to know more about the people we work with and especially to know more about the things that matter to them. I guarantee that their spouse or significant other, their children, their pet, their favorite team, those things are just as high, if not higher, than how much they care about you. And that's okay. And that's the way it should be. But if that is true, and we agree that that's true, the way we can show them, our employees, that we care about them is by caring about the things they care about. We want them to care about the things we care about. Care about this deadline. Care about this filing. Care about this client. Great. Care about my spouse. Care about my children. Care about my dog. Care about my hobbies, my interests. I get that you may have worked at a place and come up in a career where no one did this for you. That should not be our excuse to not do it for the next generation of employees. Hmm. When you went through that list of questions, I am in the group of people who picked the employee that they know the least. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I love however, it. However, uh, so this team including myself, has a daily huddle. Mm. So I live 27 miles away from my office in Chicago. Chicago traffic is just as brutal now as LA traffic. So I never go there. Once every three months, I'll stop by and visit. So you got me on question number two. Mm. I don't know if this employee feels really happy about this job. She seems to be always engaged during those huddles. I think she's making great progress. She's not my direct report. I don't know if she's happy or not. But if she leaves, I know the economic damage that she is going to cause by her departure on my P&L. Mm, interesting. I, sure. I know that because I know how much it costs to replace one account manager. It is expensive. Absolutely Real expensive. expensive. The research shows, by the way, for those that may not be familiar with it, the research shows the cost of replacing an employee is somewhere between 100 and 300% of their annual salary. Yeah. So that's the easy, quick way to figure out how much the cost would be. Do you know what their annual salary is? Take it times one, take it times two, take it times three. It's somewhere in that range. Yeah. And if you're feeling very skeptical about what Joe is saying, you know, multiply it by 0. 0.5. <laughs> sure. 
<laughs> just be like, all right, so so my total cost of having these this employee, so we know that if you have an employee who you pay gross salary of $90,000, you add another 10, 11% on payroll taxes, that's $100,000. You add their benefits and time off, you're roughly at $120,000, somewhere there. You multiply it by 0.5, that's the cost of replacing this employee. It's a cool $60,000. I like to measure things in Ferraris and yachts. <laughs> $60,000 is, if you're doing all right, that's another Ferrari and maybe a boat payment or like a really nice boat payment. It's, it's a mortgage for God's sake, right? It's, it's a very significant amount of money. Now, if it's a great employee that you may stand to lose because you do not know them very well, there's fascinating statistics that goes back a couple of decades. I forget the research that I read on this, but it stated that a great employee is always free because the value that they deliver to the organization significantly overshadows what it is that you're paying them. And a mediocre employee is three to six times more expensive than what you're paying them. So if you stand to lose an amazing employee because you do not know them very well, you do not care about them, in an extraordinary way, not a competitive way, but an extraordinary way. And by the way, today, competitive way, it's like, it's mediocre. Like 20 years ago, 25, yes. 30 years ago, when I entered into the workforce, being competitive is all we expected. Today, being competitive is kind of like, that opens the door. It's That's not even the ante up chips to sit down at the table and play the hand. It's, yeah. it's, it's not even the base level. And here's the crazy thing, Sasha. It is easier to know more about your employees today than at any other time in human history. Why? Social media. Yeah. So if you were to tell me this woman on your team, the woman you thought of, her name, the account manager, and I were to go on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or I guess we should say X now, yeah. or any of the social media platforms, I could probably find her in fairly short order. Absolutely. And when I found her profile, I could learn what matters to her. I could see the types of things she's posting about. I could see the types of things she's commenting on. I could get a feel for who she is as a person, even having never met her. Sometimes I will challenge clients that I'm working with on consulting projects just to spend one hour looking at the social media profiles of all of their employees. And then to tell me something they learned that they didn't know. I did this recently with a client and they came back and they said, I didn't know that one of my employees, that their partner had had a baby in the last six months. Sasha, I'm thinking to myself, this is literally one of the largest life events that will happen to a human being. They will have a child or their partner will have a child. This is an earth-shattering event. You didn't know that? You weren't aware? Do you think your employee is aware of the fact that you're not aware of that fact? And do you think they think positively about your ignorance on this topic or negatively? It's yeah. pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. So making your employees happy is a good business practice. Absolutely. There's a direct impact from being good, great to your employees on your PL. So you really have to be very intentional about that.
if somebody is listening or watching this and they're thinking to themselves, well, this is new. Yes, a lot of this is new to me. And they're probably thinking, where and how do I begin on this journey? What would you tell them? What are the first steps? I think the first step is to get clear on what you're currently doing as it relates to the employee experience and particularly the onboarding of new employees. Most organizations do not have a structured process for bringing new employees into their organization. Sure, they, oh, we know we post here for a job opening and we do a couple interviews and we have a hiring committee and they pick someone and we extend an offer and HR gets involved in the language of the offer. And then if they accept the offer, they come here and their manager trains them for the first day or two. And then we push them into the deep end and hope they can swim and figure it out. It's also the case that many leaders the way we onboard employees today is markedly different than the way we brought you into the organization. And it's not better. It's worse. There's less awareness. There's less connection. There's less involvement. So the first thing I like to do is to say, let's get a map of the current landscape. Let's get an understanding of what's happening right now. Sasha, I've had the pleasure of running workshops on all seven continents, looking at the experiences we create for people. And what I have found is we have never done the mapping of the journey without the people in the room going, oh my gosh, there's so much room for improvement. We could do this. We could do this better. I didn't even believe we're doing it. Why are we doing that? That's a horrible mistake. The answers appear of what to do just by getting clear on what we're currently doing. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to take it to the next level, I like to think the 50 plus case studies in my book will help give you some ideas of things you could do. But the first thing I would do is just figure out what are we actually doing right now? And to your comment earlier, who's in charge of this? Who in your organization is going to wake up tomorrow morning thinking it's my job to make the employee experience here better? Because my gut instinct is for the majority of people listening, no one is taking that as their primary responsibility. Literally no one. That's a great place to start. Yeah. And I assume that that is a significant portion of what an HR manager, HR director, someone who is in charge or should be in charge of employee happiness should be spending. It is, but I will say this about the concept. Uh, I'm a big believer, and I know many lawyers are, in the power of words, right? One of the first things you learn in your first year of law school is to define words. And we're going to define this word to mean this, and that allows us to know whether you've broken the law or not. And this word means this. And I'm fascinated by the concept of HR as an abbreviation and the underlying words of human resources. I think for way too many years, we have been focused too much on the resources side of that name and not enough on the human side of that name. And when we have a position that is in charge of human resources, the very nature of the title says you are replaceable. You are expendable. We are going to use you to the maximum benefit. That's what we do with resources. I like the titles of chief people officer, 
or chief talent officer. Mm -hmm. Because what that says is we recognize you as a person. We recognize you for your talents, for your skills, for your contributions. I think what has happened, and respectfully, many lawyers are to blame for this, is that we have made the function of human resources director a function of compliance, a function of regulation, a function of documentation, instead of a function of humanity, a function of empathy, a function of happiness. We could do better. It's an amazing way to wrap this up. Folks, you listen to Joy share this wonderful insights. Check out his book, Never Lose an Employee Again. I am getting it. I know I just read some excerpts for them, but I'm getting it now for sure. Check out his website. Joey, what is your website? I don't have that in front of me. So my website is real simple. It's my name, joeycoleman.com. That's J-O-E-Y, like a baby kangaroo or a five-year-old, you know. Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N, like the camping equipment, but no relation, joeycoleman.com. There you'll find information about how to never lose an employee again, how to never lose a customer again. My books are available in whatever way you like to consume books. If you like a hardback book that you can sit and take notes in, we have hardback books. If you like an ebook that you can read on your Kindle, we have ebooks. If you like audiobooks, if you've enjoyed the sound of my voice during this podcast, I narrate the audiobook so you can listen to me read the book to you. So the book is called Never Lose an Employee Again. The first book was called Never Lose a Customer Again. They're very similar in the sense that it's all about the experiences you create for the people you serve. How can you make those experiences so remarkable that they keep coming back for more? Love it. Joey, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sasha. And thanks to everybody for listening in and watching. So appreciate it. And I hope it uh, has left you with an idea or two and how you might be able to enhance the experiences you're delivering to your team members. Thanks for listening to the Grow Law Firm podcast. If you liked the ideas shared in this episode, help a fellow lawyer out by sharing a link to the episode. This episode is powered by the team of experts in client attraction, growlawfirm.com. Do you want a complimentary growth plan for your law firm? Request it at growlawfirm.com slash blueprint.